Buckle up. We've got the gold standard of podcast guests on this episode of Spark Generation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chris Fussell. Chris has authored the 2015 New York Times bestseller, Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World, as well as the 2017 Wall Street Journal bestseller, One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. He is president of leadership development firm McChrystal Group, alongside General Stanley McChrystal, and they work with some of the world's leading organizations. They also host their own podcast, No Turning Back. Oh, and Chris is also a former Navy SEAL commander. So join us as Kentex David Tui delves into Chris's brain to journey through his life's work. Hear Chris's thoughts on designing organisations built upon a team of teams approach, fully networked teams, network communication, and the behaviours required to make it work. Okay, ready? This is Spark Generation. Sorry, Chris, I'll jump right in. For those that don't know you, obviously, um, a quarter of teams to teams. Can you give us an oversight um, for our organization of what brought you to realizing that uh, the, the book Teams of Dreams and the philosophy contained within it needed to be brought to the world and what that kind of journey was like for you uh, building up through your experiences um, on the JSA and stuff like that? Yeah, um, mo- mostly because um, things were not going very well when I was in the military. Um, I was in the in the SEAL Team Special Operations community in the U.S. Uh, military, um, and this was nearly nearly twenty years ago. Um, and we, you know, post two thousand one, obviously the world changed on the on the military side of things. Um, we found ourselves collectively the the military, other agencies, and then the special operations community specifically um, involved in a type of fight that was far more complex and fast changing than we were um, designed to handle, not at the small team level, but at the broad enterprise level. Um, our senior leader at that point was General Stan McChrystal, who's now my partner and the CEO of our firm, uh, McChrystal Group. He was the first senior leader I saw in the military who was willing to step back and say, let's, let's look at this objectively. We're a 20,000 person force, plus or minus. Um, we have the most specialized small teams, 20 person units, give or take, uh, that that any military around the world has ever uh, fielded. Every time those small units, those individual teams go and address a problem, they're successful, bar for the the rare occasion. Um, And despite that, we are still watching this new type of adversary grow change and adapt to the environment at a pace that we can't keep up with and so we have to be honest with ourselves and say there's a there's a potentially an existential problem here we could lose to an an opponent who is nowhere near as capable in a one-on-one encounter but far more capable at uh, leveraging the realities of the 21st century they communicate with greater speed because they're unencumbered by bureaucracy they distribute authorities to the local level because they are not structured. They are a distributed network of individual actors and they have an alignment on intent that is overarching everything they do. They have a, they have a, a 
story and narrative that they all live inside of um, and that they were growing exponentially that is very powerful and meaning meaningful and we don't really compete on any of those levels now on on relative scale of you know uh, funding and capability of the small team and individual operator etc there was no comparison we we you know it was orders of magnitude more capable on our side but McChrystal said despite all those relative advantages there's something about these other sort of network and information age dynamics that are making our approach almost irrelevant in today's world. And so that was 2003, 2004, when he started driving that conversation. It's nearly 20 years ago. And when I look at it from this lens um, to my younger self, uh, there, there was not a sense that this was, we, we view that as a, a new type of terrorist threat to simplify it. Um, and so McChrystal drove us through this transformation, took four or five years and created a system that scaled the agility and communication and, and cultural norms of those small units up into that 20,000 person global enterprise. And he did that by changing the way we communicated, the types of relationships that were put in place between different traditionally tribalized verticals and ultimately how he was able to push authorities down to the front line. All of that ha happening under an umbrella, a narrative, a story that was much more about who we were as a culture than metrics driven. Metrics were the outcome of becoming the right type of culture that could win in the information age. And so obviously those, those changes mapped against the, the, the uh, relative strengths of the network problem we were facing. Um, now, fa fast forwarding to today, or over the last 10 years, the reason that we thought it was important to try to capture that in team of teams and, and to work with other organizations to help them implement um, similar sorts of operational frameworks was because I can say personally, my thinking expanded as I got out of the military in 2000, almost 10 years ago. Um, to realize everyone's going through this problem. This is this is not the Al Qaeda didn't invent uh, the information age or network theory, right? They they uh, leveraged it to their own advantage, and that's what's happening around industry. Everybody's facing these fast moving, constantly changing problems, and a traditional system, no matter how hard it tries, it can't keep up with that that rate of change. Okay, good. You talk, I was listening to something recently that you were on, Chris. I think it was a, a while back, maybe 2016. It was the Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, and uh, General Crystal refers to you in, in many situations, actually, refers to you as being curious um, and curiosity. And I always believe you question your way into You question the future into existence. What, where does that come from? Where does your curiosity or your embedded curiosity about rethinking something different? Is it, has it always been there as a young boy or, or is it something you developed? in your uh, in your military career and then into the true uh, further developed in McChrystal? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think, I don't know, I think those are some things like that are inherent in people. I would, I grew up as an as an athlete, I grew up wrestling. And my, um, my coaches always told me that I overthought everything. Like even in the moment, I was always a half second behind where I should be because I was sort of pondering the situation. Um, I probably would have been a, a better I don't know, chess player or something than a, <laughs> than a wrestler. Um, so some of it's probably inherent. Um, I don't think that's, you know, I, I'm a big believer in this sort of type one, type two brain 
we all have a bit of both. We all have our sort of animal brain and our and our reflective brain. Um, but most of us have one side or the other that's dominant. Some are outsized. I probably have outsized um, sort of slow thinking wiring. Um, in, and in some cases, that's that's helpful, advantageous. Um, as, a, as a consultant, as an operations officer, as uh, sort of management and team leading, it can be very advantageous. Uh, on the wrestling mat or on the battlefield, it's something you have to you have to wrestle with and, and allow your sort of gut instinct to take over. Um, but I did find that um, sort of non non standard to my most folks that went through the a career in the SEAL teams, I really enjoyed being on staffs, which it sounds kind of strange because that's not why you you go through sort of years of torturous training and selection. Um, the the action oriented front end stuff is obviously super interesting and unique, um, and those are the most memorable experiences oftentimes. But uh, for me personally, and again, this is not not saying this is better, certainly not the norm. I really enjoyed the complex problem solving that occurred at the staff level, because there you had um, you know limited resources, more problems than you could deal with, twenty four hours in the day, human constraints, etc., and you had to come up with creative ways constantly to do more with the same amount. Um, and so that was, uh, that, that those sorts of problems are, are purpose built for the, the type two thinkers amongst us. Um, now I think any healthy organization is, is gonna have a balance of those, those two, yeah. but uh, you know, learning to leverage your relative strengths, I think is important for any leader. Do you, you know, as you, as you transitioned out of the military and into, um, uh, let's call it civilian industry, if that's the right term. How quickly did you start? I, I know I've heard you say before, you know, it wasn't called teams of teams. But how quickly did you start to see that the bureaucratic organizational structures that had been in existence probably since Sloan and, and people like that for a different period needed a refresh and a rethink? Was it something that you came out kind of knowing or just started to uh, emerge in you with reflection? Um, I, I would say I came out assuming that, you know, because at that point, you know, about 10 years ago, we had a deep understanding that, um, you know, how, how modern day terrorist organizations were leveraging technology and, and passing information and decentralizing decision making. It was very much there was it was commonly understood that this is a network problem. And you have to redesign yourself. And so my assumption was. Um, and so I was, some of this, I was advantaged by the leaders that I was able to work around, Stan McChrystal and others. I was able to spend a year at grad school writing, um, doing, doing thesis work on sort of network-based intelligence sharing. So I'd, I'd, I'd seen some outside resources, but hadn't immersed myself in it. So my working thesis was, yeah, this isn't, this wasn't designed by our adversary. It's just the way of the world. So probably others are wrestling with something similar, which is why... Um, I was excited to be involved in McChrystal Group in the first place, a, a team that intended to help solve some of these problems. Um, but at that time, obviously, it was, you know, half a dozen people, um, all with this sort of common background, which has, has changed, obviously, over the last 10, year, 10 years as we've grown and brought in different um, types of personalities and backgrounds. It, but to your point, the almost immediately after getting involved in corporate executive teams uh i, I recognize that transferability and the 
commonality amongst the problems. One of our very first organizations that McChrystal Group worked with at any sort of scale was the Scott's Miracle Grow um, Lawn and Garden uh, Company out of uh, Ohio. And their then president is now a senior partner and board member in our organization um, because he had implemented this model and believed in it deeply and has been a great thought partner for other corporate uh, entities. And I remember sitting down with him and his team, just sort of observing things about 10 years ago. And <clears throat> Barry Sanders is his name. Barry describing to us and others around the table, here's how we're structured. We're, we're, we're really excellent at mapping our year along the following calendar. Here's when we do R&D. Here's when we sell into the market. Here's when we, uh, you know, very standard calendar approach. Here are the problems that we're now facing. And he started to describe these other more complex problems around localized issues, sharing information across different markets, um, changes in regulation between different different states, et cetera. And those, these are moving fast. This moves slow and deliberately. This is built to fight our traditional competitors. We, do, we need a better mechanism that, that allows us to uh, align against these faster moving problems. And that was the first inkling I had that said, oh, it's the same thing, essentially. You need two systems that can work in harmony together. You need your, your traditional structured model, which most good organizations have built themselves around, and you need the ability to decentralize and operate as a network when and where that makes sense. So it was now that was a far cry from having a methodology in place that was that was repeatable, which obviously we've done since then. But um, but the parallels were clear pretty early. Okay, excellent. Just um, in terms of the teams, the teams philosophy itself, Chris. Um, you know, one of the, I, I think this is a well-beaten question. Uh, I imagine with you, but how how how, how do you, when you look at the kind of, let's call it the, the, the military-esque birth of it versus the corporate implementation of it, how hard is it for an organization to, to see the commonalities of what the philosophy is and pulling it in to, the, to their corporate kind of, let's say, behavior or culture? And, and how difficult is it for you? Because I imagine the penetration is extremely important down to as far into the organization as possible. How do you folks deal with that? Um, trying to get that across to organizations that, you know, that, that is a philosophy that is applicable to both and also needs to be as deep as possible into the organization. Um, most of the conversations are pivot very quickly toward um, it's applicability. This this methodology is applicability in in the in other arenas beyond the military, and that's because you know if you or I were having an early stage discussion, I would say right out of the gates, David, just just so we're so you're clear, the team of teams methodology was designed by Stan McCrystal, other senior leaders, um, in order to rewire the way that part of the military had worked traditionally. So this is not about traditional military thinking, as you might understand. I don't know your background and understanding there, um, but the top-down centralized control and structure that militaries have built themselves around for generations, for thousands of years, arguably, was no longer effective in the part of the fight we were facing. And so I'll stop, right? So that part, right, that introductory discussion usually gets corporate leaders to realize, okay, this is, this is not about military thinking. This is about a, a way of doing business that is applicable in the information age, 
where things move faster, uh, problems are decentralized and unpredictable, and I need to get decision-making as close to the edge of my organization as possible without over-empowering people so that they're creating strategic risk for my business. Um, that's what McChrystal was wrestling with. That's what any thoughtful leader that I, we work with in today's environment is, is wrestling with. So, um, and then beyond that, you get you get into the nuts and bolts of how you implement some, something like this. But we try to be very clear about that out of the gates. Well, excellent. The one area, one area I was um, also keen on, uh, but going deeper with you on was, and and it, it, I, I appreciate that the amount of analytics that you guys use is incredible. So this is a very generic response I'm, I'm probably looking from you. But, uh, you know, what, what would you see as being the most common obstacles for an organization in their implementation of a teams of teams, be it culture or behaviors? What, what for you jumps up? Um, jumps up first and foremost when you, you know, you unintentionally judge an organization when you roll in the door day one. Um, yeah, the, and I'll, I'll talk just a, briefly about the use of analytics, which is becoming more important every day in, in, in big organizations. Um, but the, no, no, no surprise, the number one challenge in any change model is the, the human factor. Um, I'm, in, I'm as inherently lazy as the, as the next person, probably more so, right? So if you, I get, I get routinized into a way of doing business. And if you come and say, hey, there's a, there's a different way to do things. There's a different software platform we're going to use. We're going to shift off of Outlook and start using whatever. You know, I'm always going to say, wait a second, why, why are we doing this? Like, it seems like things are going well. I'd rather make incremental improvements on what we already have than make a big shift in how we do things. Um, that's true about me and, and the vast majority of people. So that's the that's the biggest challenge. Um, the only way, and, and I would be the first to tell an organization, again, back to that sort of, if you and I have an early stage conversation, I'll lay out the, the thinking on this and the applicability and some case studies. And if that amount of shift in how you're running your business doesn't make sense, if you think you can get to your results better through uh, or equally through a traditional model, then you should do that, right? Because that's that will cause you less headaches in trying to don't just change for change's sake. Um, but if you think you, and that was true for us in the origin story, like um, if we could have won through a traditional methodology, we certainly would have done that. It wasn't a, a matter of wouldn't it be neat if we did something different. It was we don't have an option anymore. We've got to try something different. And so some organizations are the point at the point just in collectively where we are in the in this transition into the information age some are over their skis and acknowledge that like we're already feeling a mass amount of stress so we're the burning platform is not too far over the horizon others might be a few years off um, and others might not feel the need to to change radically and all those are fine answers and, and so we do try to frame that up out of the gates because that will help you inform the human dynamic how are you going to talk to your people about the need to make this sorts of sort of transformation. Um, and su supporting that is the analytics uh, piece. We we have an analytics team, as, as you know, David, but uh, there are others, you know, other large organizations that are diving deep into the human analytics of uh, how an organization runs. Any, any thoughtful leader will know, well, here's my org chart on the wall. You know, I've got the CEO, the, the C-suite, the da-da-da. But here's how it actually functions, which is different. 
right? There's the hallway reality and the org chart reality. Um, and the hallway reality is, is in a much more rapid state of change. The last year has really uh, disrupted what that looks like because we're all uh, working at distance from one another. And so applying analytics, network analytics and cultural analytics to try to, which we do all the time, so that you can overlay for an organization and say, look, here's what you look like on paper. Here's what you're trying to accomplish uh, three to five year strategy, however you're looking at that. But here's how you actually function on a day-to-day -day basis. These two teams, for example, uh, th their connectedness around a certain project is critical for its success. But they, when they talk about how they do business, who they interact with, they don't really connect. They go through this boss up here and this boss up here and they coordinate and go back down. In normal times, that might be fine, but the problem you're asking them to solve is mo moving at a much faster pace. And so team and each team talking to their boss and waiting for a decision to come back down, that, that takes time. It uh, absorbs just internal process churn so that people, you know, there's an opportunity cost whenever you have a meeting, you're not talking about something else. Um, and so you're probably not gonna get against that piece of your strategy as fast as you like. And so you have to figure out a way to connect those teams more effectively if that's a critical part of your strategy. Maybe you wanna rewrite the strategy because you're not worried about that siloing. And so being able to look at that through an analytics lens when you can actually see the human networks and cultural overlays um, will tell you a lot about how close your business is to actually accomplishing its goals. And that helps, again, support and change the conversation on the human factor of how do you convince people that the time is right to make a shift? I, I imagine, Chris, and you can um, uh, correct me, but I imagine that um, is, there, is there an inflection point where as you're going through this change, you start to see more conversations of action rather than understanding where, uh, and, and it's not coming back up as it would traditionally, decision-making is not rising back up through the ranks, but is being made closer to the, let's call it in, in our world, the project world, um, and that's our product. Is that a common kind of, let's call it an output of success that, that, that gets realized when you feel like, you know, okay, we're on the right path here, we're starting to move? Yeah, I mean, you're describing the um, sort of the coin of the realm, as I like to refer to in today's, today's world. I mean, that is the ultimate goal. Um, and there are a lot of things that have to go into place to, to, in most organizations have to be put in place for that to happen with consistency. Um, what, uh, and I, I'll talk about the example of how that shift took place in, in understand McChrystal and sort of the point of origin of this sort of thinking. Um, he accelerated as one of many things. He accelerated the, the pace and the inclusiveness of our communications. And so, when he took over this this part of the uh, military, it was on a more regular cadence. Communication happened at the project level. You know, there's a there's a boss two layers up running two or three teams, and there's a there's a tight little loop down there. Um, but they're they're sort of siloed off from the other pieces of the of the battlefield or the market, however you want to look at it. Uh, and then on a you know a weekly, quarterly, etc. cadence, senior leadership was informed and made decisions that it always works just fine. Um, there was a recognition that's nowhere near fast enough. So in time, this wasn't just a snap of the fingers. Very organically, the pace of communication of the, of the organization grew and expanded. So we, we eventually we were synchronizing uh, every 24 hours, seven days a week for 60 to 90 minutes. 
It was called the Global Operations and Intelligence Update. Uh, it, think of it not as a top-down uh, meeting, but as a, as a network coming together with Stan McChrystal and other senior leaders interspersed in that network to connect and drive conversations, but not to tell people what to do next. And to your point, David, that started to really demonstrate what was happening and the possibility of change when people would come into that forum, that communication structure, after 22 hours of operational stuff, and they weren't saying, okay, what should we do next? They were saying, here's what we did over the last 20 hours. You knew about the first thing. Here are two or three other things we did as a result of what we learned in that first one. That second and third action would be news to the majority of people on that call. And then they, they weren't looking for permission for what they were going to do next. They're saying, we did this, we learned X, we don't here, and then here. And as soon as we're done with this meeting, we're going to start planning to go here. And what they were looking for was, was reaction or insights or others to say, oh, if you're going to go here, you should know about this thing we just learned. Or maybe senior leaders would say, um, tell me more about why you're going here, because that doesn't seem like the obvious next move to me, but clearly you know more, right? So I always think of it as a, as a pendulum, right? A, a normal organization, leadership says X, and the pendulum is nicely aligned straight down, so everybody understands, right? And then leadership starts to push forward in its strategic thinking, and the pendulum swings behind it, right? So most of us are down here on the pendulum, and we're getting out of touch with senior leadership. And they have to call the big monthly meeting to realign us, right? And then as soon as that meeting's over, we start to shift behind them. Because if you get in front of them, in most organizations, you know, if you and I are running a team and we're ahead of the leaders, we're worried like, oh, if we do this, we might, we might do the wrong thing. We might get in trouble. People might lose their jobs. When what McChrystal did was on full step, we would synchronize every 24 hours, and then the, the lower part of the pendulum would move forward. And so every 24 hours when we resynchronized, the communication coming coming from the bottom up was actually pulling senior leadership back into alignment with what was happening on the ground. It's a very different feeling and a very different way to run an organization. And it takes leaders constantly reminding people, when we synchronize, I want you to then go forward. I want you to get ahead of me because this is a complex fight. And the only reality is the one out there on the ground that you're seeing. By the time you tell me what it is, it's already changing. So when we synchronize, I want you to tell me what you've done and what you're gonna do next. I don't want you to wait and ask permission for what you think I, uh, what I think you should do. Yeah, it's, um, it's not lost to me. I was in your resilience uh, training in the last couple of days. And I think the, uh, the example that was given by your folks at McChrystal was um, the head of the dinosaur. <laughs> you know, when a leader speaks, it moves the head, but the tail swings. Um, and uh, it, it was something that as you were speaking with the pendulum, it was reminding me of, um, of that resilience training. I, I wonder, Chris, um, when, when, we, when, we, when we talk about that, going a little deeper on that, it seems very um uh it seems like a difficult task because what you have it sounds like to me the biggest restriction is actually the senior leadership in allowing to relinquish control into the organization from a certain aspect of it not total control but allowing them to build up teams to assume control um uh, closest to the footprint or closest to the fire if you want to call it 
and and supporting and enable them to think like think and act in ways like the organization would wish them to for them 24 48 hours one week that there isn't a resync taking place would that be would that be one of the common obstacles it it is but um but the goal is the team of teams does not exist to um to say senior leadership if 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 you got your act together, this would all be fine, right? <laughs> their, their support and focus on a change like this is, is a necessary component, but it's not sufficient in and amongst itself, right? There are, there are layers, uh, and we've, we've seen this now for 10 years, right? So if you, if you think about a, an organization in three simple layers, right? So strategic leadership up top, middle management and frontline, whatever terminology you use for those. There's a challenge for this sort of transition model at each one of those layers. And again, over, oversimplifying it, at the senior most level, it's broadly what you said, right? You, but there's an empathy for each layer as well, right? The, the challenge for senior leaders is I'm going to have to change the sort of cultural tone that I'm setting. Maybe I'm a very sort of authoritarian leader, which obviously has its time and place and can be a very successful approach to leadership, like it or not. Um, but I'm going to have to have a more, create a culture of two-way conversation, right? And might, that might be a challenge for me. I might not really like that. Um, there's also going to be the challenge of having this much transparency and inclusiveness in how we communicate. I'm, I'm going to put myself intentionally in communication structures where David and his frontline project managers are going to say things to me about what they've already done that I might not know about. I might be in position of asking a dumb question. I might be frustrated by what action they've taken. And I'm going to have to be thoughtful and measured in how I communicate back and forth with them. Now, once they get through that, and we've seen this countless times, they start to unlock the exponential rate of uh, return for a model like this, right? So that's why their, their involvement and view is so critical. Um, but I can also say, living in this part of the market, you know, that that part of the bell curve of leaders are um, have been for several years. And obviously, after the last 12 months, um, they are anxious to find ways to make this next step because they realize that that's one of the best ways to de-risk an organization in a uh, in a very complex world that we now find ourselves in. It, the middle management um, faces the challenge of uh, what what will my job be? in a more networked environment, because normally I'm the gatekeeper, right? I, I listen to the project teams, I know the strategy, and I decide who talks about what, when, right? And if they're, everybody's connected all the time, like what, what role do I play? And so we have to work with mid-level management, which is the critical sort of foundational pieces of any big organization, and say, look, first off, it's not pure network chaos all the time. What we're trying to do is separate what are the things that have to be structured and more formal, which is obviously your traditional role, and we're going to give you more bandwidth to be able to do that effectively. And what are the things that can be more decentralized and networked? The interesting part for mid management folks is as you start to pull those two pieces apart, clarify them in, in, inside of different communication structures and decision making cycles, the mid level folks are the ones who uh, reap the most uh, enjoyment out of a transition like this, right? Because they have more time and bandwidth to focus on those structured things that they know have to happen well every time. And they live in the middle of these networks. So they can very quickly say, oh, David, 
you should talk to Chris or David's team. You need to connect with the C-suite like right now and let them know about that. And so they have this very interesting and dynamic life over here on the, on the network side. And then finally at that, at the front line, oftentimes um, it's an exaggeration a bit, but th that's the part of the organization that will say, oh, this is great, right? We're, we need to be more dynamic. I need more authorities, et cetera. And they go through a challenging phase when they realize, yes, but it comes with a lot of accountability, right? Because you're going to be given access to whatever information you need to get your job done. You're going to have the authorities to be able to execute without asking permission, uh, et cetera. But you're going to have to leverage those effectively, right? It means you're going to be uncomfortable at times because you're going to go out into the field. You're going to be looking at a project, et cetera. And there's going to be a part of you. And I know I've I went through this when I was in the military that wants to pick up the phone and call your boss and say, can I do X? And your boss is going to say, yes, you, you should have already done that, actually. Like th these are these are the types of decisions we're trying to decentralize to your level. And if you keep calling me every single time, we're just running through a traditional way of doing business. So it's that phase of, of discomfort where those frontline folks have to realize, OK, I have to take these authorities seriously and start to drive execution on my level. Otherwise, we're not going to get the full benefit of a model like this. So you guys, um, you guys talk about in your resilience toolkit, the, um, you know, I, I think in part one is stability. You talk about critical behaviors and leadership behaviors. I, I'd just like to get your um, opinion on what are, what are, you know, the most valuable leadership behaviors coming into this transition and, and uh, that you've seen in the past that can be an accelerant or a catalyst for success um, that people could focus on improving uh, as we move towards the teams, as they move towards the teams of teams concept? Um, I, it's an age old question, right? I, I would throw a few thoughts out that have always seemed important to me. And more importantly, traits that we've seen in leaders and leadership teams that have been very effective going through transitions like, like this one. Um, Humility or, or servant leader mentality, um, which is, you know, I'll often say to a leader, don't don't think of yourself at the top of the org chart. Think of yourself as the central node uh, and you exist to support the organization uh, towards its mission, um, you know, which is a sort of a classic servant leader mentality. Um, and that if, if you're working with a, a leader or leadership team that is driven by uh servant to the rest servant mentality to the rest of your organization um you can move faster through something like this because the organization will will understand um david is putting the interest of the organization first and foremost in his mind he always has and so you'll you'll move with a faster speed of trust uh, when you have that sort of leadership behavior in place um discipline is uh also a, just an age-old um, critical factor in, in my view for folks as they get more senior, um, personal discipline around their, their, their own cadence behaviors, the way they interact with the organization, et cetera. There is a, especially in a, in a team of teams approach, there is a, um, a structure and discipline when it comes to implementing operational cadence, uh, being thoughtful about the cascading of decision-making authorities, um, that, and I could go on there that are critical to its success. Um, I often compare this sort of model to, um, if there's any music fans in your world, to 
uh, jazz, which I, I grew up somewhat as a little bit of a musician, I really enjoy jazz. Those that it's a bit of an obscure comparison, but um, those that know the jazz world know that jazz sounds cool and funky because it's so structured and disciplined. Right? When you when you hear musicians really improvising effectively, I and mean, there's some you know classic recordings in the jazz world that demonstrate that musicians are able to make that time and space because they are so good at the disciplined foundation of the music. Um, and so if you can get an organization, if a leader can get an organization to, to the point where, hey, we're going to be incredibly disciplined at the small things that are critical so that we can give ourselves white space to move fast and be creative, then you've really hit um, a pretty high mark. So th th those are the big ones that come to mind when you ask that. Oh, excellent, Chris. Just um, obviously, if, if, uh, I know me and you discussed it last week. We, we've just announced uh, a day zero announcement of um, Kentex acquisition of SNC Lavalin's uh, oil and gas group, um, which takes us from you know a three thousand person organization to a to an eight or nine thousand person organization. And I think one of the areas that we're really open to within Kentech, uh, Chris, is a refresh of charter and purpose. And then you guys call it um, uh, you know shared consciousness. Can you go a little bit on uh, as we move towards this acquisition? How how important is it to define to implement? Sorry, to define a purpose, but then to get people to kind of wear it as a badge. Um, where are the pitfalls in that? I, I always find it an extremely tough sentence to write. If someone said to me, "Can you put together a purpose for a team or an organization?" It, it it's such a a difficult kind of mindset to bring yourself to. Yeah, it, it, it can be it can be hard. It can be oversimplified and become a buzzword. We're we're uh, you know, and we've seen examples of that. Or it can be, you know, a lengthy two paragraph statement that becomes meaningless because you're trying to capture everything. But it's that's not to say it's not critical. Um, and especially in a transition like you all are going through. Um, I really like the the North Star idea that gets thrown out a lot. Like what's that what's that light that we're all aligning against? Um, in our a follow-up to team of teams and in, in one mission, we we go deeper uh, on this concept around the idea of an aligning narrative. What is the story um, that pulls the organization into alignment and it gives you a fallback position when you and I are at a crossroads uh, around a project or you know spending whatever the case may be, we can leverage that alignment, that story that we live into to, to help find the right answer. When, it, it, and I, in one mission, we give a deep example of how McChrystal did this in the, in the military environment, where he essentially, and we, he didn't use that sort of language at the time, but this is all in hindsight, recognized we align around the idea of winning or success or whatever that may be. But in a complex fight, if I say we're here to win, okay, as I follow that down different parts of the org chart and I get to David's team and Chris's team, we might interpret that differently. We might see my winning is more important than your winning. It might actually incentivize us not to share information or resources um, because if I give you this, you're going to win faster than I'm going to win. There's, there can be lots of problems with something that starts as a, as a very positive statement. And that pivoted toward a cultural statement. And so McChrystal started 
telling us in, in very direct terms, our, our North Star is becoming an organization built on credibility, high levels of credibility between one another and with external organizations that are looking at us because we have to be able to move very fast. We have to move faster than the adversary we're competing against. And so look at it through that lens. If we are here to win and Chris doesn't share with David fast enough, but is successful in his part of the fight, he can defend that in his own mind. He can't say that makes him more credible to David. In fact, it's going to it's going to distance them even more if you look at through a network connectivity lens. And so what would make him more credible to David? Sharing. Share first, inform David as much as possible. David should do the same. They become highly credible nodes to one another. The tie between those two teams increases. You do the math around the organization and suddenly you have this other network potential that starts to expand. Um, and he further broke credibility down into some subcomponents around uh, capability on, on the ground, levels of integrity uh, and, and relationship as the foundational element. But I think any organization, and especially where, where you all are, David, right now in your, your evolution and integration, coming up with that sort of cultural statement and what we mean when we say that can be a really powerful tool to pull people one layer out of the spreadsheets and say, who are we going to be as an organization to be successful in today's world? If we become that culture and organization, winning will be the obvious outcome. Yeah. As you were talking about credibility and you were giving your example, um, which was great. I was, I was going through the formula that you guys have in your book, which is, um, you know, the proven competence, integrity and relationships. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, and I've been in that scenario where you're competing against another project team, it, not directly, but you know you want to be more successful. And it, what's lost or what's not lost to me now, when I think back to who I was then, you look at the integrity and the relationship side, you know, do you deprive something that someone else needs for their success? Probably in, um, in direct, it could be a direct competition to your own success. Um, could I maintain integrity and the relationship um, and hence the credibility in that if, if I took the wrong decision to not help that person out. Um, and I think it's an incredibly powerful um, uh, kind of formula that you guys use in that uh, when, when I look at credibility and, and how, we work, how, we, how leadership teams and all teams work together in that network as you talk about. I, I've got one question that we traditionally close out, which is, uh, the um, you know, if you were to tell your younger self anything um, right now and maybe go back into your early 20s or late teens, what would it be? What would you tell the uh, the young leader uh, of Chris Fussell that you know now or you wish you knew then? Um, I'm a big believer that we are many different versions of ourselves throughout our lives, right? So uh, I don't know if I'd like my 25-year-old self, right? I don't like my leader, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd probably get in a fight with him. Um, but if, if anything, I would, I would, I would say, um, you know, Read more, pay attention. Uh, life is life is long, right? Um, the there, it, I was as guilty as anyone at that age uh, of thinking, I just want to get the next job, get to the next level, et cetera, et cetera, and probably didn't appreciate um, to enough depth the uh, the challenges that leaders were facing levels above me um, and what I could learn from the from the the job I was in at the moment. So. Um, you know, I think 
me for sure. A lot of us are sort of embarrassed by our younger selves. So I would probably try to talk to that person about calm and humility. Stay curious. <laughs> there you go. Um, I've got some quick fire questions for you. If we can fit this in, we will. Um, uh, I'll just read them as I think I've got seven or eight here. So uh, who's the person you most admire outside of the military? It's uh, a great question. Um, Bonhoeffer. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Uh, what are your top three habits, Chris, that if you didn't do, you wouldn't feel you could, you would be able to show up correct? Um, working out, it's just the way I uh, keep keep things in line. I got to expend that energy first thing in the morning. Uh, good diet, which I'm, I'm fortunate to be married to an amazing woman who is uh, who, who keeps us all healthy, um, whether we like it or not sometimes. Uh, and then just quality time with my family. That's how I uh, sort of reset my internal internal uh, focus. Excellent. What is the top leadership trait you believe to be undervalued in the corporate world? Um, you know, this this will. I, I don't I don't agree with this trait, but in today's conversations about what leadership should look like, which I agree with servant leadership, humility, the things we've talked about thus far, we are starting to undervalue. And by that, I mean, uh, not that it is a good trait, but underappreciate its effectiveness of some of those horrible characteristics of, uh, you know, ego, egocentric personalities, um, caustic leaders. They are, they are and still can be very effective leaders. And so we, we should be thoughtful in our view on how we groom leaders to say it's not just because you say servant leadership is the right model does not mean it will always win. And so some leaders that are on the fence, especially at a younger age, may see those other examples and say, yes, but why not? Right. And so I do think we have to constantly keep a close focus on both parts of that uh, equation. Yeah, there's a role for everything. I think, you know, when you talk about politics and stuff, it's the middle as well, right? There, there's a role for each. Um, if you were to be on the ground for, floor, the startup phase of any organization uh, in history, uh, which would it be? Other than your own, which you already Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it would probably be something in, in government. Um, Going back to the early days of OSS transition into central intelligence or some of the major programs under FDR, seeing how we tackled big projects like the Hoover Dam. Yeah. Uh, th those are things that I think we're losing touch with, those big, bold moves of transition. And so I'd love to be on the ground floor uh, early space programs in, in the US to see what it felt like to, to do bold things that people thought were unaccomplishable. Well, uh, this is the last question, Chris, because I know you're tight. Um, three people living or dead you would love to have to dinner for, for a conversation. Uh, my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. I knew you were going to go family and that. That's good. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure to be quite proud. <laughs> Um, all of them. Listen, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been incredibly insightful. Um, this will be probably the first podcast we release after our announcement. And 
I couldn't think of a better person uh, to have on board. For anyone that um, that isn't aware of Teams of Teams, it's a fascinating read. Um, talks about doing things differently. I really appreciate your counsel and uh, uh, look forward to connecting again in the future, Chris. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Take care. I bet after listening to that, you're just as intrigued by the mind of Chris Fussell and the work of the McChrystal Group. If you want to hear more insights, then please check out their podcast, No Turning Back, available in all the usual places you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed what you heard here today, then please hit subscribe. Until next time, stay safe.